Waltzing Matilda is the most easily recognised Australian song out there. It's been recorded over 600 times in a multitude of different styles and languages and was even the first song to be broadcast from space to earth. And it's not only Australians who like this, as it's been covered by the likes of Elton John and Johnny Cash, with visiting artists from The Killers to Andre Ryu playing the familiar tune to delighted crowds, who always tickled when a foreigner makes an attempt to, in a phrase, speak the language. But considering how well known it is, how absolutely saturated across the Australian landscape it's become, we cannot actually agree on what it really means. There is no piece of writing in our country that is more contended than Waltzing Matilda, and there's virtually nothing about either the lyrics or the music that can be universally agreed on. People are usually pretty certain about what they think it means, but it's always subjective. As we have precious few facts, I'm just going to give you the basics straight up. We know it was written by Andrew Barton Patterson, who more frequently went by the pen name Banjo, and it was first put to music by Christina McPherson when Patterson was visiting her family at Dagworth Station in 1895. While it was publicly performed in the same year at the North Gregory Hotel, it wasn't published until 1903, and by then the music had been changed as it was now written by Marie Cowan for Billy T Advertisement. But that now leads to the fact that we now have two different versions of Waltzing Matilda, the common version and the Queensland one. And then it wasn't actually recorded until 1926. That was by the Queensland-born tenor John Collinson with the pianist Russell Callow. So, in some ways, we have a 30-year grace period when the song's meaning was very much left to the masses. Even the very name Waltzing Matilda causes confusion. One of the most interesting interpretations I've come across so far is the idea that the name is in fact a euphemism for a hanging, and that the last jerky kicks the condemned gives as he's strangled to death is in some way seen as a waltz. Now, like I said before, there's so many conflicting accounts that there really isn't a right or a wrong, but in this case, I'm going to say most likely not. Um, also go to say that you're morbid as hell if you think this. Come on, guys, the song is already dark enough. And aside from some vague word of mouth stuff, there is absolutely no historical evidence for this one. I think someone out there just wanted to sound cool. The most commonly accepted belief is that the term Waltzing Matilda comes from the German phrase Auf der Waltz, or Auf der Waltz gern. Now this comes from the uh, Wanderjahre, or the Journeyman Years, aka the prototype of the Gap Year. This is a medieval tradition that's still alive today in Germany, where after the completion of your schooling or your apprenticeship, you go out into the world for several years, travelling, working, perfecting your craft. But by the time it came to Aftervolts in Australia, things had changed. Yeah, they were still travelling and looking for work along the way, but uh, now this was due to desperate unemployment rather than the widening of one's world's views. And who is Matilda? Often it's interpreted as the name for the actual bag that the lonely swagman out there on the road with only his pack for company would sometimes personify his bag as a woman. 
But believe it or not, there were actually women out on the road too. And in some places in the country, Matilda was actually slang for those unmarried women on the road who acted in all ways as a wife would to the swagman that they followed. It's also interesting to note that this name also keeps with the German flavour, as Matilda comes from Mathilda, meaning battle-hardened or mighty battle-maid. And Matilda wasn't just reserved for white women either. Uh, there were many Indigenous women who accompanied the swagmen across the country, either by their own choice or not. There's another song that addresses this particular topic much more directly, called The Drover's Boy, but uh, that's going to be for another day. In a way, Matilda is both no one and every woman west of the divide. It's almost like a gentle ode to the convicts, the pioneers and the indigenous women who all lived extremely harsh and mostly forgotten lives. And let's be honest guys, Banjo was a poet. He wanted the thing to sound good and the words waltzing Matilda just sound nice. I mean, the phrase humping your bluey means the same thing, but it doesn't really sound nearly as good. Think about it. Um, who'll come a humpin' your bluey with me? Yeah, it fits, but it doesn't really work. A lot of the language in this is now a bit archaic, and in some circumstances, it's so distinctly Australian that when recordings of Waltz and Matilda are made overseas, a lot of the words are changed, particularly those of an Indigenous origin. Think about it. Jumbuck becomes sheep or ram. Tucker bag becomes food bag. Those I can understand as their direct translations, but I still don't like billabong being changed into waterhole. It's not a waterhole in the traditional Northern Hemisphere sense of the word. Billabong literally means dead water, and it can mean either the deep part of the river that doesn't dry up during drought, or a small branch of the river system that has become disconnected and is now shallow and stagnant. And like I said before, Banjo is choosing his words to sound good, to bring a certain image to mind. Billabongs they're lonesome, they're cut off, and sometimes they only appear when things are rough. Everything is rough, dry, and still. The swagman all alone, he's cut off from society as the bad times weigh him down. He's out in the middle of nowhere where it's rough and dry and still. Makes you think, is the imagery in the poem supposed to reflect the man, or is it supposed to show how, given time, the man reflects his country? Now let's get into the historical context. Banjo arrived at Dagworth Station, located in regional Queensland near the town of Winton, in January 1895. His arrival came at the tail end of a bitter and long drawn out battle between the squatters and the shearers. Wool was now the largest industry in the country, which in turn led to a huge workforce, which was unionised. The Australian Shearers Union had tens of thousands of members all across the nation and wielded significant political and social strength. In 1890, a move against non-union members and outright demands for better pay and conditions were made, and with the support of those on the wharves, won. Bolstered that by this success, the shearers were unmoved when the squatters claimed a year later that falling wool prices meant that the shearers would have to sign individual contracts, which sought to exclude union involvement and cut workers' pay. They refused. Everyone would be paid an unchanging decent amount or they wouldn't work at all. They took a vote and on the 5th of January 1891 they went out on strike. 
Now, this was to become the first large-scale industrial dispute in Australia's history, with significant consequences that are still felt to this day, known simply as the Great Shearers' Strike of 1891. The line in the Red Sen was for the first time distinctly drawn. You were either on the workers' side, the swaggies, the shearers, or you were with the bosses, the squatters, backed up by the troopers, the police, and even the might of the army. It's not an exaggeration to say that from January to June in 1891, Queensland quivered on the brink of a civil war, with those from the Union committing acts of sabotage designed to stop production, while the troopers and soldiers regularly beat, arrested and intimidated those on the line. Now let's talk about the squatters for a moment. The squatter is the second most important character in the poem, and as the name implies, this person did not actually have legal rights to the land that he claimed to own. Well, nobody did. This is Australia. The entire land was stolen. Once again, that's an entire differently, it's a different conversation. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna try to keep this as simplified as possible, okay? Now, the Crown disregarded 65,000 years of tradition and said that they now own the land. This government-owned land would then be worked by convicts to provide produce not only for Australia, but of course for Great Britain. Now, the squatters would then come in and take over sections of Crown land, steal livestock and farm it as their own. They could get away with this because the country was so big there was generally not people out there monitoring it. Eventually, this practice became so widespread that the squatter could simply gain official ownership by either paying the government for a lease or buying it outright, usually for a pretty pathetic sum. There's a wonderful irony here of a bunch of free settlers doing this in Australia and becoming immensely rich and powerful because of it, because if you did the same thing in Britain at the time, you got transported. So, depending on who you talk to, a squatter is either seen as a brave go-getter who made the best of a hard situation, or is a slimy little thief trying to buy his way into high society. It's not clear what Banjo thought of the squatter in his palm, but it is interesting that he made a point of noting him as such. He could have easily made him a farmer. Maybe he was simply spelling out the deep irony here of a swaggy being essentially sentenced to death for stealing a sheep, but a squatter who'd made his fortune by stealing a massive amount of land and hundreds of head of livestock was the one that was sentencing him to death. That someone standing on twice stolen land should have the full weight of the law behind him is a deep injustice that's often overlooked in the singing of this song today, but back in the 1890s would have deeply resonated with the public. Now back to the strike. By mid-1891, conditions had deteriorated. Poor weather, newly constructed railroads allowing easily brought out scab labour, and the removal and jailing of prominent leaders all led to the strike's collapse on the 18th of June. But though the squatters had won, the victory was not without its cost even to them. By the time Banjo reached Dagwar Station, the very last bits of the strike were being wrapped up. Although the union-sanctioned strike had officially ended, this hadn't stopped small skirmishes from flaring up over the years that followed. The last and most violent of these occurred at Dagwest Station in September 1894, just 14 weeks before Banjo's visit. Striking shearers had turned violent and they'd set fire to the woolshed, killing dozens of sheep. Outraged at the loss of property, an all-out assault was launched against the strikers by the troopers. It was then that the son of the squatter, Robert or Bob McPherson, and three troopers, Austin Cafferty, Michael Daly, and Robert Dyer, broke away from the main fight to give chase to a man called Samuel Hofmeister, otherwise known as Frenchy, who they believed to be the ringleader. 
They managed to corner Hofmeister a little distance from the station at a place called Combo Waterhole and, according to the official report, rather than surrender, Hofmeister shot and killed himself. Sound familiar? So when Banjo walked into Winton in 1895, a deep dark shadow of the not so distant past was still hanging very heavy over everyone. There is no way he could have missed out on the talk of what had happened, the official story, and the rumours. Because even while it was ruled, after a two day investigation, that Hofmeister had indeed killed himself, the only witnesses to this was a powerful landowner and three police officers. Even then there were whispers that Hofmeister did not in fact shoot himself, that he was, in actuality, murdered. And a lot of people suspected the squatter Bob McPherson. In any case, the similarities between this event and the POM are way too striking to be ignored. So is Combo Waterhole the billabong? Was Hofmeister the jolly swagman? Is it his ghost that you might hear? And why the hell was Banjo in Winton in the first place? Now, it's not an exaggeration to say Winton is in the middle of nowhere. I've been there. I've been to nowhere. It's right in the middle. It, I mean, you do not go there without a reason. At that time, back in the 1890s, Banjo was engaged to a woman called Sarah Riley, and the two of them were in Winton visiting Sarah's brother, Frederick. Frederick Riley was part of the squatocracy, as it was known, and he owned Vindex Station, which was right next to Dagworth. The Rileys and the McPhersons were friends, and when Sarah and her visiting fiancé came into town, that was an excellent excuse for the two families to meet up, come together for an evening entertainment in Winton. And that was where Banjo Patterson met Bob McPherson's sister, Christina. And now we get a whole different layer to this story. Now, Banjo and Sarah Riley had been engaged for eight years at this point, with both of them now in their early 30s and still unwilling to walk down the aisle. Breaking an engagement in those days was beyond hard, but the length of this one showed that neither party seemed to be overly taken with the idea of uh, matrimonial bliss. Banjo did seem taken, however, with Christina. Christina McPherson had returned to Dagworth Station from Melbourne to spend Christmas with her family, just after the recent death of her mother. That evening, at Frederick Riley's place in Winton, Christina began to play various little tunes that she knew on the zither, or auto-harp. By her own confession, she wasn't overly musical, but she did have an ear for it, and about halfway through she attempted to recreate the Craigley March, a Scottish song that she'd heard in Warrnambool just the year before. While listening to her, Banjo asked her what tune this was, and when she told him, he gave the offhand remark that he felt that he knew it already before, as it awoke the Scot in him, and that he could probably write something to it. And it was then and there, probably in a small, dusty, overly hot parlour in a tiny country town in the middle of nowhere, that Banjo scribbled out the first verse. The two of them tested it together, and as it seemed to work, Banjo was bolstered to finish it by the end of the evening. By the end of the night, what we now know as the Queensland version of Waltz and Matilda had been written and performed. Within the first few weeks, everyone in the district was singing it. And soon, all the travellers, the swaggies, the stockmen, the shearers, they'd all learnt it and they had taken this tune and spread it far across the Midwest by word of mouth alone. The Queensland version, as we know it today, is mostly the same, but it does have a distinct addition. 
When you sing the chorus, you add the words, Matilda, my darling. Now, this is just my opinion. I'm just gonna put it out there right now. Uh, Banjo was a good looking guy, okay? We can't overlook this. He was good looking, he was talented, he was likable, he was just, well, okay, basically he was in many ways our first pop star. And he was an absolute dog when it came to women. <laughs> many people believe that Christina and Banjo had an affair. Although you need to remember that an 1895 type of affair, uh, that was very different to what you're probably picturing. However, while this has been wildly speculated, it's never been proven. But at this point, we're pretty sure that something happened between the man who wrote the words and the woman who put it to music. At the same time, Banjo was still engaged to Sarah. What we do know for certain is that shortly afterwards, Sarah finally broke their engagement and moved to London. Christina eventually returned to Melbourne. She never remarried. She spent the rest of her days there. And Banjo, was never again invited to Dagworth Station. A few years after this, when Banjo was between publications, he gathered Waltz and Matilda along with some other little pieces and sold them to Angus and Robinson for the sum of five pounds. That's all he ever got for it. That's roughly the equivalent of $650 today, which to be fair, isn't bad. I mean, I tell you right now, if I could make 600 bucks, you know, selling a few poems, I would in a heartbeat. Now that this song was basically in public domain, the company Billy T hired Ma uh, Marie Cowan to rearrange Waltzing Matilda in 1903, specifically to add the line of waiting for his Billy to boil. Surprise guys, the most commonly heard version of Waltzing Matilda is actually based on an advertisement for tea. But I think we already knew that. Uh, generally that seems to be one of those little trivia facts that you come across at some point. And from then on, it just spiraled. One reason why Billy T chose this tune for advertisement is that it was already popular. And now that it was on this radio, it was in the theater, being played in every dance hall, in every home, around the campfire, in schools, in the army, being sung softly and slowly by those feeling more than a little bit homesick as they traveled overseas. It was everywhere. It can be played in any way. And by the 1920s, everyone knew it. But why has it remained so popular? Now, a lot of people believe it's because it promotes the idea of the freedom of the outback, of the fair go. I personally find this idea to be a bit silly and superficial, because uh, we're not talking about the fair go. It was showing how blatantly unfair the country could be. Think about everything that happened in the lead up to this four verse poem. There was a strike, a death, a whispered conspiracy, an affair. Waltzing Matilda is much darker than a lot of people think. Although, it doesn't try to hide it. The lead character dies. <laughs> I mean, it always kind of pointed out that it might have a lovely, happy tune, but it doesn't have an overly happy story. The writer, Matthew Richardson, said that Waltzing Matilda was more likely written, and I quote, as a carefully worded political allegory to record and comment on the events of the Shearer's strike. But it was also written without being overtly political in its own way, without offending the type of upper crust crowd that he was trying to sell his poems to in the first place. I find it very interesting that it was put to the music by the sister of the man most likely responsible for the murder of the infamous Swaggy. 
The great Shearer's strike is now often overlooked, but back when Waltzing Matilda was first being sung, everybody knew about it, and it was more than likely that they also knew what the death of the swagman really represented. It represented the struggle of the workers against the bosses, the swaggies versus the squatters, even up to the famous you'll never take me alive line. The strike was defeated, but the shearers, like the swagmen in the poem, stayed absolutely defiant to the bitter end. This sentiment in the poem would have cut very close to the quick back then. But these days, that sentiment seems to have faded to almost nothing, and I even hear people calling the swagman nothing more than a petty thief who deserved to die. Perhaps this is just how I was brought up, but I've always personally sympathised with the swaggy. In all honesty, you're supposed to, he's the protagonist here. But I have met my fair share of people who for some reason find the squatter to be more familiar, and in general, I treat those people with an unspoken but deep suspicion. But. Once again, this is just my take on it. Everything about Waltz and Matilda is subjective. This is just my view. You might have your own view, but that doesn't negate mine. And I think that might be the crux of why Waltz and Matilda has remained so popular, why there's over 600 different recorded versions. Because you can take it and you can make it mean what you want to. You don't even need to play it in the same way. Is it being played fast or slow? Is it joyous or plaintive? Defeated or defiant? I have heard the most bizarre versions. I've heard a 1980s rock ballad. I've heard a poppy version. I've heard a cappella. I've heard so many different ones, but in the end, we're all asking the same question over and over again. Who's going to dance with me? Who's going to eat with me? Who's going to travel with me like the Matildas of old? Who's going to stand with me like the Strikers? And who's going to still listen to my voice even after I'm dead? Matilda, my darling, who'll come a-waltzing Matilda with me?